McLaughlin at work. Paul McLaughlin here with Pankaj Gamawat, the book, World 3.0, Global Prosperity and How to Achieve It. Going to start out on an audio track by having Pankaj pronounce his name the way he and his family would do it. Well, I pronounce it Pankaj Gamawat, but any recognizable facsimile will work. And the book is an outgrowth of your work, which is now substantial to date. Give us just a touch of a background that brings us forward to 2011 and World 3.0. Well, World 3.0 is based on an analogy with the distinctions amongst Web 1.0, 2.0, and 3.0. Web 1.0 was the very passive, let's just look up information on the web. Web 2.0 is what we're currently going through with social networks and interactivity amongst web users. Web 3.0, which people are talking about, focuses on not just communication, but contextuated communication. Similarly, World 1.0 was the old national world where we sometimes sort of imported stuff from overseas, but we were really focused on our domestic mindsets. World 2.0 is this illusion of somehow being able to cross all borders costlessly and being in perfect communication with everybody. World 3.0 recognizes that cross-border interactions are important, but also that national borders still matter, and that the lion's share of economic activity is between countries that are close to each other, geographically, culturally, politically, etc. Now, a couple of questions about the book, and, and I'm going to skip around here a little bit, because it's, it's a, as I was discussing with one of your colleagues the other night, it is a dense book. It does have graphs, it does have facts, and they are tied together in your own inimitable style. What is the pers what is, from what perspective is this book taken? Well, the book's written from the perspective of somebody who doesn't specialize in economics or business, but who's nonetheless interested in trying to get more of a handle on one of the great economic and cultural and political phenomena of our time. And so I... And what is that phenomena? Uh, the phenomenon of cross-border integration and its implications. And to the 1.0, 2.0, 3.0 analogy, if 1.0 is in its infancy and people didn't understand, 2 is the exuberance of adolescence and not knowing what you cannot not do, and 3.0 maturity, are we in the, is 3.0 when we will arrive, or do you obviously see sequels to that? Are we really in the second inning of 3.0? I think 3.0 is going to be with us for a long time, so yeah, I guess first or second inning rather than ninth inning would be the analogy I'd draw. And coming back to perspective, when you talk about the internet, much of what recently we think of, what with Google, Facebook, um, all of the social networking clearly picked up by the rest of the world, but a economic, uh, but is a largely U.S. driven uh, and initiated um, small world phenomena. Uh, where does where does the United States fit in this book? And that was really my question about perspective. Well, the book is written in a way that uh, certainly draws heavily on U.S. examples and talks quite a bit about U.S. policy issues, but it is meant to offer a general framework that can be customized to different starting points around the world. 
And so while I look at the U.S., I also devote half a chapter to Andorra and Nigeria, mm -hmm. which are not countries that commonly get picked up on in globalization-related books. And there were deliberate reasons for doing that. One is that there are more than 100 countries in the world with fewer than 10 million people each. And so uh, amidst all the discussion of globalization and BRICS, I wanted to make the point that the frameworks developed in this book are helpful for those countries as well as for larger countries in thinking about their economic prospects. And second, uh, the idea of looking at Nigeria is the idea of, okay, if I can find a framework for thinking about the world that's robust enough to be the basis for a credible presentation to Andorran policymakers about what they should do with Andorra, and the basis for a credible presentation to Nigerian policymakers for what they should do about Nigeria, in some sense I feel relatively comfortable about the robustness of the framework. If I have my geography right, Andorra is in your backyard? Andorra <laughs> is uh, about 200 kilometers from where I live in Barcelona. And what makes, what make, uh, why did you select Andorra and Nigeria? Well, I was uh, wrapping up this book and I wanted to do a little bit of stress testing. So in November 2011, uh, 2010, those were two uh, speaking opportunities involving speaking to key policymakers that came up. And I said, great, let me try out in real time before I send this book off in its final form to the publishers, whether this stuff actually works in these two very different economies. So it was more the time, the time window of November when I was wrapping this book up. Mm -hmm. These two speaking opportunities came up that plus the criterion of heterogeneity that drove the selection. Now, when you have, uh, when you have countries that you're talking about in the context of a global um, situation and you're trying to help the reader understand, uh, the perspective question and the, maybe, maybe I'm, I'm mixing something here, but Tip O'Neill said all politics is local. One of the things that stru struck me about the book is that all e economics is local, except for, pardon the expression, people like yourself. So it's hard to understand, to grasp global economics for somebody, even, even somebody like myself who's reasonably well read, but I'm intimidated by the notion and I default back to walking out into Times Square. So when you speak to Andorra and Nigeria, where you were stress testing, this was as an economist, but to the local economy, and, and how, is, how did it reach people, and who did you reach? Well, in Andorra, as I was told, we had three quarters of the country's GDP in this not very large room. Uh, Andorra is a small place. It's sort of a mall, in, in effect, I mean, it's, to some extent. I've been through there in the last few years, um, and it, it is one sort of mega shopping center to some extent. Obviously, there's large parts of the country, but in the valley there. And that is their big, uh, that was their big reason for success and is their big current problem. Because with liberalization within the EU, the advantages of Andorra as a shopping destination have declined. And so the big policy issue that Andorran policymakers are facing, okay, given that mall tourism seems to have seen its best days and while it will be important for some time to come, What's next for Andorra? And you helped them with that. 
Uh, yes, I uh, started off by showing a little picture that I have included in the book that just looked at where Andorra's imports come from and pointed out... A, a fact-based uh, chart, picture. A fact-based chart with uh, their trading partners or their import partners drawn in proportion to the volume of Andorra's imports from them. And from Andorra's perspective, the world essentially consists of Spain and to a lesser extent France. And so one clear implication of that very simple visual representation was, geez, maybe you need to think about stretching a little bit farther, especially given the prognosis for the Spanish economy, as you think not just about where you're getting stuff from, but what you're selling. And maybe you need to start looking beyond merchandise to start thinking about services, because uh, they, while they do have a, a vibrant banking sector, which is the second largest part of the economy, some of its appeal has been dimmed by the fact that there's been a lot of pressure on financial havens to get rid of some of the regulatory and other loopholes that have allowed them to thrive. And Little Andorra, sandwiched right in the middle of the European Union, has no option but to fall in line with EU directives on what you can and cannot do in banking and financial services. And with raising the issue of the EU and another issue associated with the book, the book World 3.0, Global Prosperity and How to Achieve It. It's a, in, in the local economy, the issue of dealing with global issues uh, for the for the locality and and who they listen to. One of the one of your notions here in the book, or one of the, the points of interest in the book, is you you take issue with um, some of your colleagues in the in the in the business of economy um, to refute some of their notions statistically, and some of those statistics are quite uh, revealing. Perhaps you could share a couple of those. Well, let's take a U.S. perspective. Uh, so let's think, first of all, of who the U.S.'s uh, largest trading partners are. China figures in the top three, but the largest is Canada, and the third largest is Mexico. Let's take a look at, focus in on, say, energy, where, which, is a focus, which is the focus of a great deal of attention these days. U.S.'s largest crude supplier is Canada. Mexico's the fourth largest, and combined, those sources account for more U.S. oil imports than all of the Middle East and North Africa combined. Or take a look at U.S. outgoing phone traffic. Two largest destinations, once again, Mexico and Canada. So that is a little bit of a reminder that while cross-border interactions are important, they're still subject to the law of distance, and interactions tend to be much more intense with people who are close by, whether geographically or culturally or politically, thanks to NAFTA, for instance, than with people randomly selected across the planet. Isn't the problem with uh, economists dealing with issues and facts is that you sometimes lose the perspective of the individual, that the people side of, of um, whether it's the topical issues happening in France these days, or whether it's um, the mortgage meltdown, the financial services. There are a number of economists in retrospect who, who looked at why that happened. And if it wasn't chaos theory, it, it simply was people didn't un fully, everybody who should have, didn't fully appreciate 
what was going on. And those were people who were making those decisions. When I see some of these, um, when I see some of the statistics, the statistics are different because they are against people's expectations or anticipations. And that's because there is a public thought that the world, world 3.0 is different from the way you paint it. How'd that happen? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons why people have, and this is true of anti and pro-globalizers, why people have overblown conceptions of cross-border integration. I think the first reason is that a lot of this discussion occurs in a data-free zone. And so if you take the book that's uh, sold more copies than all its globalization-related predecessors combined, Tom Friedman's The World is Flat, here's a 450-page book that doesn't have a single table, figure, reference, chart, or footnote. Uh, and I think that that's about typical for a lot of the discussions. Is that a flaw in it? Uh, I certainly think it's a huge flaw because it allows a discussion that's entirely detached from reality. Global warming, would that have been a similar model? Uh, sorry, I didn't. The, the global, global warming, the, the whole notion that the world was becoming much warmer and we've had, is that, a, is that an analogous to this discussion? That the uh, Vice President Gore and the discussion of the global global weather patterns took a much too narrow slice of what we're witnessing now and we don't have the perspective of history. Is that true here as well? Uh, I think global warming has certainly been subject to a lot of fact-based analysis. So, But on both sides as well. On both sides, but again, I think while you can always find a minority to disagree because disagreement in a climate of general unanimity commands a lot of attention, mm -hmm. I think the science on that is relatively clear. And I do think that the natural scientists have traditionally had more of a tradition of just getting together interesting descriptive statistics, which is something that is not an activity that's held in very high status across all of the social sciences. Which is that activity, the, gather, the, the conceptual gathering of data on which people would agree and then may perhaps draw different conclusions? Right, exactly. And your data um, would support the fact that in order to prosper, what do we have to do differently, have to do differently? than what we are either doing or heading towards doing now? Well, I think that we have to remember that uh, integration is not just something that has to be preserved, but something that if you t adopt this perspective that I do, or rather if you believe the data that I present in about 10 to 20% globalization, that there is an enormous amount of headroom for further integration. And I'm not just talking about trade flows. I'm talking about uh, flows of money to a certain extent, although that presents some unique problems. I'm talking about flows of people, and I'm talking about flows of ideas. And so the second commonality I see between pro-globalizers and anti-globalizers is that both groups actually have a tendency to underestimate the gains from additional integration. Um, the anti-globalizers, of course, believe that there are no such gains and that they're just harms. The pro-globalizers, do try and look at some benefits from globalization, but typically take a very narrow conception of what kinds of cross-border flows might be worth thinking about, and also what the range of potential benefits might be. So one of the things that I try to explain in this book is why the gains from further liberalization are much larger than you think. 
And obviously, a necessary condition for there to be such gains is that we should be a little bit short of this 100% globalization idea that was so common in World 2.0. Did you ever believe that globalization was, I mean, you're, you are multifaceted and, and you have been educated here in the States. You are from India originally, and now you teach in, in, in Europe. Um, is that kind of perspective and outlook the necessary requirement for dealing with a global economy as opposed to perhaps many of the people in the Congress in the United States or even more American uh, economists? Is that is there a body? Is there almost a United Nations? Should there be a United Nations of economists? And if not, why not? Well, I mean, I don't think that this kind of perspective of having lived in multiple environments is necessary to make sense of or to do well in the kind of world that we're living. I do think it confers certain kinds of advantages. In proof of which, one of the reasons I moved from Boston to Barcelona was this notion that our daughter was growing up. Uh, very, very monoculturally, despite the fact that she was going to a really good school in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And while she protested at the time that this was going to ruin her life as she knew it. Uh, her parents were going to ruin her life. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and her father she was particularly. Much more explicit about, uh, the agents. Uh, the agents of change. And it's very interesting to uh, think about her perspective now. And I was uh, so impressed with it that I actually got her to write a little two page insert for the last chapter of this book hmm. where she describes what this has actually meant to her and how it's changed her outlook. So I think Malcolm Gladwell, in one of his books, had, uh, had a discussion of people that he called connectors. Mm -hmm. And I think in a world where differences still matter a great deal, there is a valuable role to be played by connectors. Not everybody can or should aspire to be a connector. But yes, if you take differences seriously, the notion that connection can be a valuable activity is something that starts to seem more appealing. Money, people, and ideas. Um, capital flows, they create their own issues, and clearly they did in the last um, economic debacle, which is a worldwide phenomena. Um, there are, you, you attach, you address capital flows in, in the book. Um, I couldn't understand that. I just couldn't, it just, I, I couldn't understand it because I couldn't get into it far enough to pull out the truth about it. But it seems to me that capital flows, high frequency trading, paper being securitized, that, that has a particularly either artificial method to it of, of, uh, seeking highest return. And a core thought is that capital flows seems to, be almost antithetical to the uh, integration of people. It is it, capital flows are kind of mindless, but they have an enormous economic impact. Could you pull the the notion of it, people integration and capital integration together for me? Well, let me start with capital uh, integration and just say a few things about that, and then try and link that to people integration. So I think um, uh, perhaps a simpler way of getting into uh, the uh, issues of the benefits and limitations of cross-border capital integration is to go back to this quote from Ben Graham that Warren Buffett's uh, very fond of using, 
which is on any given day, <clears throat> when you meet Mr. Market, he might be very euphoric or he might be down in the dumps. And, you know, you decide whether you want to trade with Mr. Market. But treating Mr. Market's quotes as the definitive uh, encapsulation of value would be a very foolish mistake. And yet that's, in effect, what many governments did when they assumed that they could run their economies under the assumption that there would be easy access to finance continuing to be available from external sources. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. It seems a bit imprudent to run a national economy strictly predicated on the notion that markets will behave well all of the time. So yes, I do believe in market failures, and the middle section of my book is devoted to looking at different kinds of market failures. I think a range of economists, not all of them, because economists never agree unanimously on anything, but a range of economists have come to the conclusion that given informational and other issues with financial assets, financial markets are particularly prone to market failures. And while that doesn't mean we should do away with cross-border capital flows, there's a difference between FDI, which might uh, foreign direct investment, which might wax and wane, but doesn't get repossessed, versus borrowing from banks where inflows can very rapidly turn into outflows because the bankers decide to call in the loans. And especially in regard to the latter kinds of flows, I think it's not just me, I think the IMF has finally come to the conclusion that some restrictions on those kinds of flows may be necessary. So markets are good, integration is generally good, but that doesn't mean that there isn't a residual role for regulation. And I think capital flows highlight that point in the most vivid form possible. Stay with that point for a minute. When you talk about bankers decide, that's really part of the people equation as opposed to, say, a high-frequency trader who's looking for an arbitrage and bank loans being different from the, the market of the day. Doesn't that get in? Doesn't that, isn't that where capital flows meet, meet people? where politics begin to play the role, oil is, is money, oil is energy. Th this has always been my issue with the discussions where, where people, the, the bankers, I mean, we, we, we hear about the financial problems that we had in this country as we viewed it from this country, and yet uh, it was by and large people-oriented. And so the, the notion that some capital seems to flow and sort of like water find its own gravity, and then other times dams are put up uh, by people. And in terms of those are the kinds of things that you can't regulate, the, the politics. And so the, the, the model, the model that something like 3.0 3 puts, puts forth seems to... As, as one of the questioners asked you at, at a, a previous meeting, seems not to take into effect some of those other social, cultural aspects that really are as much a part of the decision-making as the economist view. I'm sort of getting the difference between up here and down here, where most people make their local economic decisions, which is why this book is so confounding in many ways, because it's, it's written for people who know more than people who are buying cigarettes and know they shouldn't on the streets of New York. 
Well, I would actually strenuously disagree. Good. That's what I'm looking for. And uh, the point is, the whole point behind market failures being so endemic in the financial sector obviously has to go back to people's psychology. It's not just the fact that we live in an uncertain world, but that as human beings, when we try and deal with uncertainty, there are all kinds of pathologies that <laughs> uh, get reinforced. And so I, rather than sort of try and propose a schema for getting rid of market failures altogether, right. because here we're talking about greed, we're talking about some very fundamental <laughs> human emotions, Correct. and nobody is going to abolish There are in Nigeria and Andorra and, and in California. But what I do talk about are prudential mechanisms that seem likely to reduce the effects of that kind of behavior. So let me take a very specific example, and this was an example I was using before the financial crisis. Uh, two economists, Obsfeld and Taylor, pulled, pulled together this long series on capital mobility between countries and pointed out that basically any time global capital flows started to exceed 3% of GDP, usually there was a financial crisis waiting to happen. There was an excess of liquidity and an insufficiency of caution. So in 2005, 2006... I like that, liquidity against caution. <laughs> yeah, and unfortunately, people assume that because there's liquidity, there is no risk. And right. uh, we've just lived through a period that reminds us that that isn't the case. So as I watched in 2004, 2005, 2006, global capital flows zoom up past that 3% mark, past the 4% mark, which has always heralded trouble, I started to get quite worried, and I actually included in my 2007 book, Redefining Global Strategy, uh, the possibility of a global financial crisis as one of the kinds of shocks or bumps that we, we might want to prepare for. This obviously suggests an alarm that global policymakers should be looking at, and a very simple alarm. You can calculate it on the basis of data that are widely available and up-to-date. Just what is the level of cap global capital movements in relation to GDP? We know that over the last 150 years, when they've gone above a certain level, historically, that's been followed by a crash of some sort. In addition to alarms, I think we sort of rediscovered uh, this as the crisis unfolded. There's the idea of breakers or circuit breakers, mm -hmm. uh, something familiar from electrical networks, mm -hmm. where, you know, it's great to have everything connected, but problems will happen, even in the world of electricity, where no emotions are involved. Mm -hmm. It's just electrons flowing back and forth. And it's useful to be able to isolate parts of the system without having the whole grid go down when a problem develops locally. So breakers seem to be another part of uh, the remedy to the periodic propensity towards crisis in the capital markets. And the third thing I talk about, because I have a weakness for acronyms, so these are my ABCs, in addition to alarms and breakers, the notion of some cushions, and this is the very simply the idea that living for a country, uh, it's bad for an individual, but for a country to live on a basis that requires periodically being able to roll over its debt obligations under the assumptions that capital markets will continue to be reasonable all the time. That's a very dangerous assumption to make. And some cushions or reserves might be a better way of approaching an uncertain world rather than, well, if conditions continue to be good, we can just sort of barely get past this moment. In your historical view over the last hundred years, what was the most important decade for economic 
assessment and projection for how we should be? Well, I think that uh, there are a couple of different candidates. Uh, I think that uh, the period around the Great Depression was a great illustration of how bad policy choices can drive the world under, not for just quarters or years, but for longer periods of time. I think post-World War II, what happened again in the late 40s and through the 50s was remarkable because however much we make fun of uh, the institutions for multilateral governance, it really is striking that amidst all the rubble of the post-war world, people were able to think of institutions of that sort rather than continuing on in the vein that they had prior to the war. And I think Europe, uh, the European <clears throat> Union is another great example from the late 1950s of a vision that really sought to go bef beyond what had come before and try and make the world a much safer place. And then I think uh, these 10 years, uh, I don't know where what starts this decade or ends it, but uh, the few years that we've been living through and the next few years are one way or another going to be an, another reminder of the endogeneity of outcomes, of the fact that we're not on a predestined path either to prosperity or to poverty. It's the choices that we make that have a very critical bearing on what's going to happen. And in those choices, um, are you hopeful? I'm um, hopeful with one big caveat, and that big caveat has to do with the unemployment situation. So I have a very simple uh, little test that I do of how bad the unemployment situation is. Let me just illustrate it in Please. the context of the U.S. The U.S. right now has 7 million uh, people fewer on the employment rolls than it did when the crisis hit in December 2007. The maximum rate at which the U.S. economy has ever created jobs is roughly about 200,000 jobs a month. We take that 7 million and divide by 200,000. We're talking about a period close to three years to absorb that overhang. That is a long time in politics. And if you think that's bad, think of Spain, where I live right now, where the unemployment rate is officially 21.3%. If we take, if we just look at bringing it down to 10%, because these figures tend to be somewhat exaggerated in Spain, so what would be a horrendous unemployment rate in the U.S. actually translates into uh, a socially less significant figure because the black economy is large and so forth in Spain. If we think of bringing that 21.3% down to 10%, which is roughly what the Spanish unemployment rate was close to being before the crisis hit, we're talking about a period closer to five to six years. That's an eternity in politics. So my biggest worry is that with unemployment persisting at high levels, we might actually end up making some very dumb policy choices. And I think that if you look at the appeal of groups like the National Front in France, whose status, you know, it is likely that Marine Le Pen will be in a runoff for the French presidency, mm -hmm. given what's been happening to the Socialist Party of late. Mm -hmm. And you look at their platform, this is very much a World 1.0 platform. Mm -hmm. Let's raise the borders, let's have the state take over all important activities to reindustrialize France, 
let's uh, protect, let's sort of institute border controls, let's be nasty to immigrants. Uh, and it's interesting that while some of these elements are indigenous to the extreme right, some of these are actually things that one might have associated with leftist movements not that long ago. The emphasis on state ownership, on protectionism, and so forth. So when I look at the political landscape, that's the part that makes me worry a little bit. Because when I think of the fundamentals, when I think of technology, when I think about the fact that we have more and more people getting out of poverty in different parts of the world than ever before, and large markets being created. All that inspires optimism, but I'm still worried about our ability to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. And lastly, to that point, as we conclude our discussion about World 3.0 with Pankaj Gamrat, uh, global prosperity and how to achieve it. Do that again. Wait, hold on, hold on. Let me just get you two. Nice big fat two shot. Yes, yeah, so we can do a little conclusion thing here. Uh, yeah. And in conclusion, the book. Thank you. And in conclusion, with my discussion with Bangaj, Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at Work, World 3.0 Global Prosperity and How to Achieve It of the Current World Order, project out 50 years. How do you view the world? What will it look like politically, but more importantly, economically? Well, I think that, uh, of course, uh, prediction over that time frame has certain advantages and certain disadvantages. Uh, you and I will be of an age to, dis to discuss it. Uh, well, uh, <laughs> the advantage, in fact, is I won't be held to account on my projections for 50 years from now going terribly awry. Uh, the advantage is that one can look beyond some of just the current confusion about precisely what Bernanke will decide to do mm -hmm. in terms of quantitative easing and think a little little bit more about the longer-term historical dynamics. So if we think back to what happened over the last 200 years, 200 years ago, per capita incomes were pretty much the same around the world. Since then, uh, the West and eventually Japan got ahead. Everybody else got left behind. Uh, it is a plausible scenario, and in fact, to my mind, the likely scenario, that that gap, given what's going on in China and India, will in fact narrow, that China and India will go back to accounting for the roughly 40% of global GDP that they accounted for before the Industrial Revolution started, just on the basis of their populations. And so I do think that the world economically is going to, uh, as a number of people have suggested, that the economic center of the world is going to be migrating eastward. And will balance to some extent. And to much rebalance, rebalance some imbalances yeah. that developed over the last 200 years. Mm -hmm. And that's why China finds it perfectly natural that they should be the largest economy in the world because that's how 19 of the last 21 centuries ended. Mm -hmm. And so to them, this is not something unheralded or new. This is simply a restoration of the normal order. Now, I think politically, the picture is, uh, again, much more confusing and potentially problematic. I think that uh, it's going to be very interesting to sort of see how the ascendant power balances its political relationships with the previous hegemon, as it were, the United States. And I think that there are a lot of implications, not just for people in China and the United States, but for people elsewhere. 
So I remember doing a talk to Indian policymakers a couple of months ago where I did the very simple thing of sort of, you know, putting up a few maps. And the maps were basically color-coded so that they showed which countries traded more with the U.S. and which countries traded more with China. In 2000, 90% of the world's GDP was accounted for by countries that traded more with the U.S. than with China. By 2009, this figure had already shifted to 50-50. So mm. color-coding, you do see this sea <laughs> of spreading ink. And then the question for Indian policymakers were, okay, if we just run the naive extrapolation out, we're going to be trading five to ten times as much with China in 2030 as with the U.S., as will all of China's neighbors. What do we think this world will look like? Uh, are we really happy about being part of a greater Chinese co-prosperity sphere? If not, how do we think about our geopolitical options? And I think that for all the discussion of U.S. soft power, etc., this is a hard issue that the U.S., as well as countries that are just along China's periphery, need to face up to. Because I do have some worries, personally, about a world in which China is the hegemon, as opposed to the United States. As I was telling my daughter, we might look back to this period of U.S. domination and look at it as some kind of golden age. Pankaj, thank you for your uh, observations. The book, World, uh, World 3.0, Harvard Business Press. And we look forward to uh, seeing how this analysis unfolds, both in the short term, because it moves so quickly, and in the longer term, when we can reflect on the wisdom that we saw here today. Thank you so much.